Hey everyone, this is Alex Titus and Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Ukrainian government got more in random crypto donations from social media than they got from the United Nations. The market downturn is we're kind of focused internally. It, it is an opportunity for everyone to kind of get back to basics and really double down on building in the space. Crypto has sort of tracked closer to traditional asset classes in this particular downturn. Summarily, mining is the process by which new tokens are unlocked, and it involves computers solving complex mathematical problems that get more and more difficult as more and more blocks and tokens are unlocked. Oregon is unique in the space in that Senator Wyden's been such a great supporter and champion. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we have a special national-focused episode, which we do talk about Oregon quite a bit. But we do have Ian Mayer with us, who is the vice president of U.S. policy over at blockchain.com, which is a very large cryptocurrency exchange and large crypto wallet company, which Ian will explain once we get into the episode, since those are all somewhat confusing terms. And Ian used to be a vice president over at the Smith Free Group, which is a lobbying organization that advised fintech and crypto clients on legislative and regulatory affairs. And Ian is also a internet law and policy foundry fellow. And he's been working in the crypto and tech space for quite some time. So Ben, what'd you think of the episode? So the way that I would frame this episode to our listeners is basically like, Alex, I would say you know more than most people, at least that I know on crypto, but you're far from an expert. We brought Ian on to basically help translate to people who are politics first or more interested in the political space to help understand what are the basics of crypto and what should people who are operating in the political space know and understand. So we cover Bitcoin mining, we talk about what the blockchain is, we talk about the merits of crypto and it's how it can be used. We talk about the recent market downturn. Like this is a very basic level, what should people in politics know and understand about crypto, blockchain, etc. I learned a ton. I thought it was super useful conversation. Ian is a very helpful explainer for what some of these, we, some fun little Easter eggs to look for. Ron Wyden came up as a national leader on this issue, but from like an interesting point of view, Labor Commissioner Val Hoyle got brought up as someone doing some interesting things in the crypto space. So yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation with Ian and I'm hoping to build out my fluency in understanding crypto and its implications. What about you, Alex? Yeah, really interesting episode. We talk about a lot of topics. And I think the most interesting thing that's going on with crypto, which Ian talks about, is it's really the wild, wild west right now, because there's not really much going on from a federal perspective on regulation, but it's really coming from the states and the states are taking the lead on it. So Ian kind of talks through that in the episode a little bit more about what that means. And then we did just want to say too, which if you would ever take financial advice from two dummies like us, that should question your financial decisions. This is that nothing in this episode is meant as financial advice or investment advice. This was just meant for educational purposes. So everyone, thanks again for taking the time to listen to the episode. Definitely go check us out on YouTube and we'll see you in the episode. Thanks everyone. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we are very excited to have Ian Merritt with us. Ian, how's it going today? I am good. I can't complain. Happy Monday, everybody. Happy Monday. As Ben said, it's always a great a great time when you're doing a podcast on Monday. So we can, we can feel very <laughs> successful, like we've had a good start, very productive start to the week. 
So Ian, you are the head of US policy for blockchain.com, which I know is a major company and a major player in the crypto space. Could you tell us a little bit more about the company in general and what exactly the company does? Sure. So blockchain.com is one of the world's oldest and most trusted cryptocurrency companies. And I get a lot of mileage out of the joke that at 10 years old, that doesn't fact <laughs> the oldest in our industry. Nice. So we'll, be, we'll be turning 11 soon, so I have to update the joke. Um, <laughs> but we have helped users all over the world create about 83 million crypto cryptocurrency wallets. And I always like to just kind of drop for the scale comparison that Wells Fargo has about 72 million accounts total. Not a shot at Wells Fargo, just a way to contextualize our kind of size in the space. Wow. We do operate a cryptocurrency exchange that's top, I believe, top 30 worldwide by volume now. I'd have to double check that, but sort of like a Coinbase or a Gemini or one of, you know, another thing like that. And we're also one of the leading providers of institutional services. So, you know, kind of more sophisticated family offices, hedge funds, people who've decided that they're kind of comfortable with their level of understanding and the kind of risk and volatility that can be involved and want to get more involved in the space. And then, because this is kind of supposed to be, of course, an understanding podcast, what exactly is a crypto wallet? Like, what does that even mean? Crypto wallet is almost like your checking or savings account with a bank. But a key difference is there's two primary types of crypto wallets. They're custodial and they're non-custodial. So a custodial wallet is very much similar to a savings or checking account with a bank in that, you know, the entity can have some visibility into what's in the account. And it's, you know, so it's very similar to that, like a checking or savings account. A non-custodial wallet is sort of what some of the more sophisticated and more privacy-minded investors use, which is that it's almost like a safety deposit box with a bank to kind of torture the analogy here where there's a record that it exists, but the entity doesn't necessarily have a lot of visibility into it. And it guarantees a lot of privacy. And it's actually a way you can use a hardware wallet, which almost looks like a little USB drive to actually disconnect your tokens from the internet, which is pretty cool. So it's a very, very secure way to store your tokens. And some people who've been in the space a lot longer, I mean, have seen, you know, the headlines about hacks that happen out there. It's a good way to really protect your tokens. Yeah. And so speaking about longevity in the crypto space, and I imagine if we actually have any crypto fanatics who are listening to this podcast, <laughs> you may actually get in trouble because I imagine there's a million different answers to the origin story. But cryptocurrency, right, has sort of exploded on the scene. I remember when I was a little high school kid hearing about Bitcoin because I was really nerdy. And my friend who I played video games with told me to buy Bitcoin for $5. Unfortunately, I asked my parents and they said, no, I could not use their credit card, which of course that <laughs> That couple twenty dollars in Bitcoin, you know, would have probably paid for like all my children's, you know, college fund at this point, which is unfortunate. But uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. I know hindsight. Is, nerdy gamer Titus really had some big ideas out there when I was thirteen or twelve or whatever. But we miss uh, him. Yeah, we miss him. But Ian, can you kind of walk through like when did crypto start? Is there kind of like a moment when you know there's a gajillion different coins now? I know I. You know, Coinbase has like hundreds of coins that they list that different people could buy. When did this all kind of get started and what's the backstory with it? So the real origin story is that on Halloween 2008, a white paper, that's the Bitcoin white paper was published by either a person or a group who to this day, we still don't know who it was or if it was more than one person named Satoshi Nakamoto. And out of, it was sort of on the heels of the financial crisis. And it was a way to what they call, it was a way to kind of invent a new internet-based and cryptography-based what they call trustless financial system, meaning that it can be truly directly peer-to-peer. -peer. And the way that you remove the trust aspect of it is it's wide open. Anybody can go back and look at any transaction that's ever happened on the Bitcoin blockchain. That was actually one of our first products and still one of our most widely used products is the blockchain.com explorer, where, you know, as I'm talking to legislators and, you know, regulators and lawmakers and things like that, 
it's always a little bit surprising when I say you can literally go back and see every transaction that has ever happened on this ledger. That's what they mean when they say it's a distributed open ledger. But that's, I digressed a little bit. But at its simplest, you know, the way I found to explain it, kind of at its simplest form, it's a digital representation of value. It's a way that people can exchange something that people agree has value without worrying, you know, across borders. There's a really good cross-border remittances story to be told there. And pretty much anybody with a smartphone can just, you know, get up and running within 24 hours or so with most exchanges. So that actually is a great transition to what I wanted to ask you about. I've got a couple of like basic, no pun intended, building block questions. Okay, so your your company is named after the blockchain. You kind of alluded to it in your last answer. What does blockchain mean and what is the value? What is the value of blockchain? So the blockchain is the network on which Bitcoin operates. And I should not, I shouldn't just say Bitcoin because there can be an infinite number of blockchains. And I actually spend one of my nitpicks that I get into with a lot of state legislators is when they have legislative language that says the blockchain, the blockchain, and I have to kind of go a blockchain. Because <laughs> okay. There's potentially an unlimited number of these, but it's the network on which any given token operates. And it is kind of, you know, that's sort of one of the big innovations of the space is that anybody can go see it. I mean, we can pull it up, right? If we went to blockchain.com slash explorer right now, anybody with an internet connection can go back and look. I mean, obviously there are trillions and trillions of transactions to sort through, but it's all there. So it is a wide open network. Not every token is as open as the Bitcoin network necessarily, but it is, you know, that's kind of the biggest, one of the biggest contributions to the space, I think, in addition to a trustless way to transfer value. But the transparency is really interesting. And there's actually a great Wired magazine did a story called Tracers in the Dark, probably, I think it was around last fall that I highly, highly recommend you read because it's an incredible story about how blockchain analytics firms helped take down the biggest child sexual abuse material network in the world. And it was because these really horrible people were using Bitcoin because they thought it was anonymous. And they thought it was a way to, you know, get circumvent that. And it was a way to, you know, do payments on the dark web and things, but they were dead wrong and they ended up all in jail, thankfully. So what was the name of the Wired article? I'll try to link to it. in the... Called Tracers in the Dark. Okay. So one quick follow-up and then I'll ask a different question. You've mentioned one of the benefits of the blockchain, which is like when it's being, when, you know, Bitcoin's being used for illicit purposes, you can actually find out who is doing that and hold them accountable for it. Are there other benefits to having this sort of like radical transparency of all transactions? There are, and we're just kind of sort of at the very beginning of exploring sort of non-financial services use for it. I know the state of Utah was kind of looking at some pilot programs about you know, so they were using the example of tax, you know, I, I think it was actually marriage licenses, not tax documents, now that I think about it, but there's some law on the books in Utah that's been there forever that you have to go to this one person in this one office and it, they, you know, they're backed up as months and months and months. So they were kind of looking at, you know, what if we issued it as a token? If there's a virtual token that I can pull up on my phone that is my marriage license and we can just push it out to whoever's getting married. And, you know, it's on an open ledger. So everyone can, in fact, see this is a valid government document. That's kind of the exciting, an exciting potential non-financial services use. But like I said, we're in the very, very early days of exploring that. And then so on a on a broader level, I think there's a lot of people in the politics space who are kind of just like broadly confused about why crypto is a thing and why this is valuable and why people spent so much money on it. And then they lost all the money on it. And it's like, can you explain why? Like some people were spending like huge portions of their life savings to purchase cryptocurrency. What's the basic sales pitch of why people should invest in cryptocurrency or the benefits of investing? Not as not as a sales pitch, but as an explanation for why people are doing this. 
Yeah. So, I mean, as far as a sales pitch slash explanation goes, we always kind of pride ourselves internally at blockchain.com of our joke is that we consider ourselves the suits, not the pirates of the space. <laughs> so, you know, we do think people should get involved and get off the couch, but that's one of the beauties of crypto is you can put in five bucks. So, you know, when people approach me and say, you know, I have read all the headlines, I'm aware of the risk, I'm comfortable, I've decided, you know, I want to get involved. What do I do? I say, go to blockchain.com, sign up for a wallet, put in five bucks, put in 10 bucks, put in 25 bucks and just watch it. You know, I mean, the best way to get involved and learn is to have a lot of skin in the game, but you don't, you know, we're not advising people to go out and empty their 401ks or anything like that. I mean, yeah. And I, you know, I always tell people, I said, put in a little bit and watch it and learn how, you know, the market reacts to an Elon Musk tweet or to a, you know, SEC enforcement action or things like that. And then after you put it in, you get a little more comfortable and then hopefully your investment grows. So you have a little bit of, you know, uh, you've made some money that you can hedge any losses against with. But yeah, I mean, just start. I always tell people start small, but start. So that's like what you're describing is sort of like how some people would approach the stock market. Like when you're purchasing a stock is like, you know, start it with a little bit, see how the market react. Like, is that about correct? Right. Yeah. And I just don't think of it as, you you know, I mean, we think of it as kind of another arrow in the financial quiver, right? It's very new and it can be very volatile at times. And I always, you know, I always tell people who want to get involved, you are you comfortable with volatility? Because the market is, can be very volatile at times. But, you know, you don't have to put in thousands and thousands of dollars. You can just start with a little bit and learn the ropes. And then once you feel a little bit more comfortable, you can branch out of, you know, some of the more popular tokens if you'd like to and get um, more exposure there. But, you know, like I always bring it back to start small, but start. So one quick question, and then I'll go back to Titus. Okay, so people, let's, you know, let's say you've invested in crypto, you've got several different coins in your wallet. Are there daily uses of crypto that people are like, Aside from it being an investment opportunity where people could either make or lose money, are there daily uses of having crypto or other uses of having crypto? That's a really good point and a really important point. And something that I run up against all the time in my work is that a lot of the kind of transactional and uses, you know, and means of exchange examples are not in the U.S., it is really, I mean, it is kind of a godsend for places that currently don't have a, or, you know, either an, a, an unstable currency or not access to a stable banking system. And a uh -huh. friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Niraj Agarwal with Coin Center, who's been involved since pretty much day one for about 12 years now, has always said that Ukraine was kind of the real world use case that he had been waiting for, where mm. for the first time ever, I mean, you know, the Ukrainian banking system was obviously somewhat destabilized. And Ukrainians got more, the Ukrainian government got more in random crypto donations from social media than they got from the United Nations. And Whoa. it worked. So, I mean, it was literally people just pitching in the, you know, goodwill on the internet. And they were able to, you know, send it to a verified address that, that was confirmed belonged to the Ukrainian government. And they were able to spend it on first aid kits and bulletproof vests and things like that, that otherwise they would have never been able to get that money just because there's, you know, their situation they're in. And another one that uh, another that Niraj also points out all the time is women in Afghanistan, a lot of times are not allowed, you know, the Taliban government doesn't allow women to have money. So any money that a woman earns has to go directly to the husband. And they, so there's a really good story, probably four or five years ago now of a woman who was operating a small business in Afghanistan and figured out, you know, I can pay my employee, my female employees who might not have the best, you know, or most healthy home situation. This is a way for me to get them money. Hmm. Alex? Yeah, no, that and that one's particularly interesting. And actually, the the a real use case that I thought of, which I wanted to, I just didn't own a cryptocurrency at this point. This is my awakening to the global financial market. Was I was doing a a fun trip to London with a couple of friends. Mm -hmm. I was about to get on the plane, and uh, I got a call from my bank that my credit card was stolen. 
Uh, so they're like, we're shutting off your account immediately. And you know, you'll get your next one in five days. And I was like, well, you're not gonna, you're gonna send this to this temporary location. I'm in the UK. So when I got there, one of my friends, they had to pay for all my stuff, you know, my train tickets, etc. And I had no way to pay her back because I couldn't pull out cash. And you can't use Venmo when you're in the United oh, Kingdom for US. Right. So at that point, I was like, oh, actually, this cryptocurrency thing kind of makes a lot of sense because I could send her <laughs> some Bitcoin, then she could do it. Of course, neither of us were that sophisticated at that point to do that. But yeah, <laughs> the, the Ukraine example makes a lot of sense to me because it's probably very hard for someone in the US otherwise to, you know, send currency over that many borders. Basically, of course, there's the exchange and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's that is a really good example. And then yeah, just kind of speaking of that, I do want to talk about just kind of some recent news, which is that, you know, we've seen a lot about, of course, the the stock market is down quite a lot this year. There's a lot of cryptocurrencies that are down. There's I believe a cryptocurrency called Luna, which at one point was pretty valuable, but basically had crashed down to zero. Uh, And I won't ask you to comment on any of the specific currencies, just because there's so many of them to track that probably be a very difficult thing for anyone to keep track of. But what's kind of going on in the crypto market right now? Like why are prices dropping? Is there kind of any evidence to is there like any real change? Or is it just kind of the stock market is dropping? So the currencies are following like what kind of in your perspective is happening there? You know, the the market downturn is we're kind of focused internally. It, it is an opportunity for everyone to kind of get back to basics and really double down on building in the space. So you know, it, it's obviously tough and, you know, it, there has been an impact to both retail and institutional markets, but it's an opportunity really to kind of build, to get back to, you know, the basics and focus on what, you know, how to ship a really excellent product to consumers. It is a little bit kind of macroeconomically interesting in that this is, crypto has sort of tracked closer to traditional asset classes in this particular downturn. That's not necessarily, you know, here nor there. That's not necessarily indicative of anything like that happening in the future or, anything like that. But it's just, there is sort of a worldwide sort of, I hate to use kind of a silly term, but there's a economics analyst I love on Twitter named Kyla Scanlon. And she has coined the term vibe session, meaning that (laughs) a lot of the economic (laughs) fundament, yeah, well, you know, it's, I just think it's brilliant because a lot of the kind of fundamental economic indicators are pretty good, right? I mean, apart from inflation, there's more job openings and available workers to fill them, things like that. There are obviously supply chain challenges. But there's this kind of almost malaise that everyone sort of thinks everything's heading in the wrong direction. And that may be true or that may not be true. We won't know for a few, you know, potentially in a few months to a year. But I just think the term vibe session kind of nailed it, where the general consensus is that the economy is not good right now, even if some of the indicators are pretty strong. (laughs) That's very fun. Our friends at the Realignment Podcast, Marshall and Sagar, talk a lot about vibes in politics and the future of politics (laughs) is about vibes, which I think is very funny and also weirdly spot on. I wanted to ask about a topic that I don't know very much about, which is mining, the mining portion of Bitcoin. And what I know is that there are some environmental concerns around Bitcoin mining, some people who believe that this might be accelerating climate change. Can you walk us through what the process of Bitcoin mining is and why folks are concerned about the environmental impact? Sure. And I'm not a mining expert, but I can give an overview. The Texas Blockchain Council has done a lot of really good work on mining for anybody listening who might want to do a little bit of a deeper dive on that. But summarily, mining is the process by which new tokens are unlocked, and it involves computers solving complex mathematical problems that get more and more difficult as more and more blocks and tokens are unlocked. Now, where the kind of environmental concern comes into it is that those problems get, you know, you need, you're not solving these problems with a MacBook. You need serious, serious computing power. So some people figured out that I can go out and actually buy um, graphics cards for computers, for gaming computers, are very powerful kind of processing machines, and, you know, put 
tens of thousands of them on a rack in a warehouse and I can, you know, actually compete for these tokens. A lot of people don't really, I shouldn't say don't really care, but when mining first kind of really started to take off, people just wanted electricity. They didn't really care where it came from. Mm -hmm. And a lot of states that kind of set up some incentive for mining are not fossil fuel dependent, but still have pretty big fossil fuel footprints. There was actually a big dust up in New York about this just earlier this year, where a plant that was a coal powered plant was that was decommissioned was actually brought back online to mine Bitcoin. And that did not go over well in a very blue state legislature, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, And actually sort of a fun aside there is that the plant was converted to liquid natural gas before it was brought back online. And I was actually at a dinner with a bunch of elected officials in New York. And I just asked them, I said, how many people knew that? And not a single one of them did. So (laughs) messaging there is very important. But yes, you know, it's a lot of use of fossil fuels, but there is a silver lining to it that to be economically competitive as a Bitcoin miner, I need me absolutely need to minimize my energy costs. And more and more, we're seeing that the cheapest source of energy in this country is renewables. I believe wind was officially the cheapest source of energy last year. So I kind of have a natural incentive built in to be, if I'm a Bitcoin miner, to gravitate towards cleaner renewable energy. Interesting. Okay, that that is helpful. My next question is about the, and I think this is like Oregon in particular, but I imagine this is a national trend. There's there's a lot of headlines about crypto candidates that have been popping up. And in Oregon, and I don't know that that, that label is actually fair or not. Um, you had folks like Carrick Flynn, who we had on this podcast, who received a bunch of money from Sam Bankman-Fried. You also had candidates who, you know, made their own wealth through crypto. Matt West was one. Cody Reynolds was another one. There's a GOP candidate actually in Oregon who's close friends with the Winklevoss twins who like apparently are pretty active in the crypto space. So it seems like there's some enthusiasm on both sides of the political aisle for crypto and the future of crypto. Can you give us a sense of like what impact you think that is will have on the future of crypto and particularly within the political space, like these new candidates who actually have real experience with crypto compared to you know, traditionally older candidates who probably don't really even know what it is? It's a great question. And I think you actually kind of hit the nail on the head right there at the end. Is that it is, <laughs> It's a generational thing. It just is. And that's, it's a big challenge to explain to, you know, someone who came to the United States Senate when they were still making literal carbon copies of documents about, <laughs> you know, this kind of trustless money that anyone can send to anyone else on their phone. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. In terms, our CEO, Peter Smith, actually loves to tell the story of he was talking to an elected official who it just, you know, I, I, it was a challenge to explain to this individual, you know, just exactly how any of it worked. And then it came out later in the meeting that this person still dictated their emails. They had never used a computer. They just told us they had, they dictated everything they wanted to go through the computer to a staffer who did it for them. That's um, wild. Yeah. But as far as the, you know, the money aspect goes, I do think it's interesting in that, you know, the amount of money that crypto companies and crypto packs and, you know, luminaries, I guess you could say, are putting in is relatively modest when you look at some other industries. For sure. I'm a, so my background before I came in-house with blockchain.com was I was at a multi-client firm for almost 10 years. Okay. So, you know, I mean, when you look at airline contributions <laughs> or railroad contributions, you know, I mean, it's relatively modest, but I think it kind of speaks to a maturing on the industry's behalf to say, look, this is, you know, you can't just tweet, you know, you need to actually show support for these candidates who are willing to support you. But it's, I think it's really kind of a sign of the industry's maturation politically, if that makes sense. Really quick, actually, um, follow up and then Alex, I'll go to you. Can you offer any nuance in how the different parties talk about 
Bitcoin, talk about crypto, talk about the blockchain? Like, are there concerns that Democrats tend to have about these issues versus concerns Republicans tend to have? Like, what is that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's all, you know, my line has always been, it's always been kind of an easy sell to a libertarian leaning Republican. Sure. Uh, maker, just because, you know, you say it's, inf- you know, it's money the government can't spend. <laughs> <laughs> that always, you know, I mean, that pretty much their eyes light up when they say, okay, where do I sign? There's also a big kind of personal individual liberty aspect to it of, you know, it's sort of like the gold bugs in the 70s and 80s, right? Of when the country was taken off the gold standard of saying, oh, well, this is the worst thing that's ever had so happened. So I'm just going to hoard it. But the kind of almost horseshoe point of connection there where there's a lot of agreement between the parties is on privacy. I mean, people do have a right, fundamental right to privacy. And, you you know, crypto does help guarantee that. But, you know, Democrats, there are some good financial inclusion stories in it, just around it, just because, like I sort of alluded to earlier, anybody can get involved. I mean, redlining is not an issue here. You don't actually have to go into a bank and get approved to do anything. Mm. You can do it all directly from your phone trustlessly. And like I said, anybody can invest any amount of money they want to. But it's all, you know, the the one thing that does come up with on the, you know, more left-leaning politicians as well as the energy use thing does come up a lot and climate impact. But that's, like I said, I usually use the exact same thing I just told you guys is that there is a built-in incentive to use the cheapest source of energy, which is more and more renewable energy. Hmm. Alex? Yeah, so so Ian and, well, actually, this, that was a great build-up to this. I sort of want to transition to kind of basically like how crypto and any sort of framework is actually introduced on the state level. Because from my understanding, there's very little federal regulation. I think President Biden put an executive order out to basically study what sort of regulation should go in place. Who knows how long that will take? Who knows what will go in place? I know, I don't know much about the case, but I know there was a, you know, an SEC action against Coinbase for two cryptocurrencies that they were selling that the SEC considers to be securities, where I know that Coinbase does not consider those to be security. I'm sure a gajillion dollars will be spent on lawyers from both sides, basically figuring out what that means for the industry. But my sort of question is, I imagine when you approach state legislatures, they probably have a lot of the same questions that we gave you on this podcast today, maybe even at a more or less sophisticated level. Some of them are probably (laughs) right, like, what is this Bitcoin? There's also a cryptocurrency with a dog on it, or there's multiple (laughs) cryptocurrencies with dogs on it. You know, the Shiba Inu, then there's like the Shiba Inu baby or whatever. And as you were saying, it's, it's a generational thing, but it's also incredibly complex. Like I tried to listen to an audiobook about staking and like the future of loans using crypto. It was I, almost incomprehensible to me. And I don't really have a financial background, but it was very difficult to understand. If you know you were talking to members of the state legislature in Oregon, which you probably are right now because they're listening, is what is even kind of the way that a state begins to get started with crypto? Or like, what are some of the things that you're seeing from other states or like, Is there kind of a simple regulatory framework that you recommend folks kind of put together? Or is that not even a step you consider? Like, how does Oregon, for example, if the government wants to kind of play or encourage innovation in the space, or like, what are even kind of the steps to go about that? Like, what does that even look like? It's a really good question. And it's interesting because, you know, I started this job almost exactly a year ago. I think it was a year ago last Monday. And the states are not waiting for the feds on this issue. I picked that up very quickly that as you, you know, I mean, I always tell people that, the kind of glacial pace of legislation and regulation is a feature, not a bug. It's meant to be a very prolonged deliberative process because the ramifications are massive, especially when you're, you know, trying to stand up a regime for something completely new. But the states are looking, particularly at what Wyoming did. Wyoming a couple of years ago stood up with their own regime and really kind of leaned in on it. And actually, she's now Senator Cynthia Lummis, but at the time was treasurer of the state, was very involved and in trying to, you know, stand up what they consider to be a nation-leading regulatory regime. 
that being said, I did, and you know, we love the Wyoming regime. Wyoming is the least populated state in the country. So what works in Wyoming isn't necessarily going to work in Oregon or New Jersey or New York or anything like that. And I know you both have policy backgrounds and this, you know, it's not the sexiest thing to say, but I am a big fan of the task force approach. <laughs> um, sure. And what I mean by that is, you know, you put, you know, you just set up a task force and you bring in, you know, chairs and your ranking members of the, you know, banking and financial services committees, maybe some consumer protection regulators, some folks from industry. So I actually, Utah, I serve on the Utah task force. I know Michigan and Pennsylvania are exploring similar things, but you know, it's not, I'm not someone who's going to rush around saying this is, you know, we need to have this figured out by December. And California is actually doing their own sort of exploratory executive order as well. And I know they're saying about a two to three year timeline. And I think that's reasonable. You know, I mean, you want to measure twice and cut once you want to get this right, you're not get it done fast, right? So I'm as far as like how states can just even get the ball rolling, I'm a big fan of just kind of the convening of experts and then and just study it, you know, potential uses and just maybe the answer is no, maybe the answer is blockchain isn't right for Oregon and that's fine. But, you know, you haven't spent taxpayer money standing up a regime nobody's going to use. When you're doing the, when you're having these conversations in states like Wyoming or at the state level, are there like opponents who are, you know, like nervous about crypto getting a foothold? Like, is it like large financial institutions or like, are there groups who don't want the proliferation of crypto? You know, at the state level, it's interesting because they're kind of adopting the viewpoint that this is here. I mean, this is a right, you know, consumer demand and retail demand is here. We need to get our arms around it. I think you heard more of that probably three or four years ago. Uh-huh. Um, just, you know, I mean, there are not as many kind of natural enemies as some people think there are. Um, I don't think of legacy financial institutions as the enemy. I kind of think of them as curious partners. You know, they're mm-hmm. kind of figuring, they're still trying to figure out how can we, sir, you know, if we have customers who want this, how can we give it to them safely and reasonably in a way that, you know, doesn't cost, doesn't get us fined or anything like that. But yeah, and again, I hate to, you know, beat the dead horse, but it is a generational thing where, you know, there are some states where the same guy has been the president of the Senate for 40 years and he's not necessarily <laughs> interested in talking to you about this, but some of his younger colleagues may be. So you got to, you know, I mean, but that's why it's important to, you know, a mentor of mine in politics always said, be nice to the interns because someday <laughs> they come back and they're going to be the chair of the committee or something like that. As a former legislative intern uh, who hopes to have a seat, I hope that's true. I also think it's funny. I don't know if this is true for Peter Courtney, our Senate president, but I think he's the longest serving presiding officer in the country, <laughs> which He's no, he won't be, he stepped down and he will not be, he's not running again. So there'll be a new Senate president next session. But I just thought that was a funny little organ aside, uh, Alex. <laughs> yeah. And so I do, I don't want to personally push back on something you just said, but I do think that at least some politicians across the country are not really taking a kind of slow approach, right? Like you have a New York mayor, Adams, right? He's taking his like salary in Bitcoin. I know that he only, the, took, he only took one paycheck in Bitcoin. Oh, he only took, okay. <laughs> Well, the PR confused me then. Or, yeah, yeah, that was it, a it seemed did a good job. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I know like that the mayor of Miami, I think he's also taking some portion of his paycheck or all of his paycheck in Bitcoin. I know the major Bitcoin conference was held in Miami. I know that that's kind of like a growing area of the space. So I think some people are saying, right, like, yeah, maybe we should wait and be cautious, but like we want to get ahead of this thing, whatever it is, because I want my state or I want my city to kind of be the dominant source of this. And I'm curious from your perspective of, of course, someone who you know, advocates on behalf of, of course, your crypto exchange, but basically de facto other crypto exchanges, right? Like I imagine generally what's good for you is probably good for Gemini, probably good for Coinbase. Maybe there's kind of some differences there too. But, you know, if 
I came to you and said, Ian, I want Oregon to be at the forefront of kind of the crypto revolution, the crypto space. What are things that policy leaders should either be considering or looking at now to kind of maybe enact some of those changes over the next five or 10 years before the industry really kind of starts to kick off? Mm -hmm. And that's a really great point, Alex, and actually a very good uh, differentiation to make there is too. You use the example of Mayor Adams and Mayor Suarez are both really, really great allies. They're mayors. They're not, you know, so mm -hmm. when I was talking to Ben's point, I was kind of saying how state legislatures might mm -hmm. engage. But, you know, it's a really good point and kind of speaks to a bigger cultural issue that there is an enthusiasm around the space, right? I mean, that mayors, and we actually briefed the Miami-Dade City Council when we were down there a few months ago, just because they, you know, they see all the momentum, they see people rushing in, they see what Mayor Suarez is doing. And Mayor Suarez is an incredible ally and champion for the industry. And they kind of want to keep up to say that, you know, and that kind of gets to an interest. That's, again, to kind of revisit the same point of be nice to the interns as, you know, do mayors of large cities don't necessarily have a lot of influence over, let's say, security policy or things like that. There's no such thing as a municipal securities regulator, but they're not going to be a mayor forever, right? I mean, they'll probably run for Senate or they'll, you know, try to get a state Senate seat or something like that. But that is a very interesting point. And I kind of struggle to think of other maybe ride sharing and maybe kind of, you know, self-driving cars that it is unique in that local politicians are so comfortable leaning in on it. And like, I just kind of can't think of too many other industries off the top of my head that are currently like that. And, you know, I think, like I said, it's not necessarily about what they can do now. It's about kind of fostering an overall healthy environment in a given state or given city, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm curious from your perspective of, because, you know, you said the states are sort of rushing into this. They're not waiting for the feds. Is, are we going to see any sort of conflicts coming out of that, right? In terms of, let's say Ben, I'm in Portland and Ben is over the river in Vancouver, Washington. Vancouver, Washington is basically a suburb of Portland. That would probably offend a lot of people in Vancouver, but they all know that it's true. Uh, and, you know, I, let's say Oregon has very, you know, we'll call it kind of freewheeling deal crypto. You can send whatever crypto you want. You can make crypto loans, whatever. But let's say the state of Washington has some really stringent regulation on it for whatever reason. And I send a crypto transaction to Ben, let's say through your exchange. I don't even know if that's actually possible through it is, but, you know, or through some sort of exchange or something like that. Because of the state first approach, are we going to run into those roadblocks? And do you think that's going to start happening quickly? Or do you think oh, generally, for the most part, kind of like the exchange of commerce and things like that will be kind of freewheeling, but maybe there's more restrictions around things like crypto loans and things like that? I think, you know, the loans get pretty, as you kind of alluded to, and you said you were listening to the staking podcast, that stuff gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. But in terms of, you know, cross border, cross state border transmission, that's a very good point. We and other crypto exchanges are required to obtain money transmitter licenses, MTLs, which are regulated at the state level. That handles most of that. And there are, you know, we don't operate in states that that's on the company to have an effective KYC, you know, know your customer policy in place. Mm -hmm. But you know, if there was a state where we don't have our money transmitter license, then we don't operate in that state, full stop. We're in the process of getting, of still gathering all of those. I think we have 32 of the, I believe is the, I don't remember how many states require them. Not every state requires one. But yeah, so we just, you know, the short answer to your question is we comply with the law. We don't, you know, we wouldn't facilitate a transaction like that. And to, to sort of pivot a little bit, but a good point about conflicts is that this is not theoretical, particularly in the area of state and federal conflict, because as part mm. of the Wyoming regime, they stood up. Uh, are you guys familiar with DAOs, DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations? The, the way I'm most familiar with it was when the DAO tried to buy the U.S. Constitution. Constitution DAO, yeah. I got beaten out by Ken Griffin, which I thought was hysterical, <laughs> right, but good, right. good for those people. <laughs> I, believe, I believe the one-year anniversary of that was last week, too, or something, if I remember. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
No, but I think providing a little context on that would be helpful. Yeah. Sure. So a DAO kind of at a high level is intended to be sort of a new business structure where that where rather than you know having stock or ownership equity in it, you would have tokens instead to represent sort of the same thing, just your ownership share of a given entity. Wyoming, as part of the regime they stood up, recognized DAOs as a legal business entity. So you know, you can go incorporate a DAO in Wyoming. The first two DAOs that were stood up under the Wyoming regime were subject to enforcement actions from the Securities Exchange Commission. (laughs) So, I mean, this isn't theoretical. This is already happening because, you know, so the definition of a security is, you know, are you going to get me going going on the Howey test now? But that's a little bit. (laughs) This is why we're long form. You can take as much time as you want to explain it to us. So if you have, if I invest money with the expectation of a return based in a common enterprise based on the efforts of others, that looks a lot like buying a stock, right? Sure. So that's sort of the real kind of, there's a real, there are a lot of unanswered hard policy questions around this because the knife's edge thing is, you know, is it autonomous organization that only exists on software? Is that a, or only exists as software online? Is that a common enterprise that is doing some kind of labor expected to generate a return? In the SDC's opinion, for those two particular DAOs, it looked enough like a security where they said, this is an unregistered securities offering and we're going to shut these two down. That's really kind of one of the more interesting cutting edge things out there because there was also a movement, a couple of states, I know New Jersey and Tennessee wanted to grant DAOs the same legal status as LLCs. And that's kind of, you walk right back and you're kind of walking right into the same brick wall where it's saying, you know, a share in an LLC is probably a security, right? So you're sort of saying without saying that I believe the tokens that are backing up my DAO are probably securities Hmm. that we we didn't register with the Securities Exchange Commission. (laughs) So. That's interesting. So last couple of questions here. When you think about the next five to 10 years, what will the future of the industry look like? What are the goals of the industry? Is it to stand up regulatory frameworks in more states? Is it national legislation? Is it flying under the radar? You know, what what do you see as the next five or 10 years for the industry? You know, I really feel like President Biden's executive order was kind of the beginning of what I'll call the real drill, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's a kind of crypto is a very fast moving industry. And there's kind of, you know, to get back to what I referred to earlier is the glacial pace of regulation and legislation. Yep, yep. This kind of everything has to be done right now mentality. And that's just not really a winning or realistic political engagement strategy. And actually, when I first joined the company, I was telling, you know, our executives that the last successful regulatory overhaul that I personally worked on took seven years. Wow. In an industry that looks, that can look radically different every two years. It's a big question. It's a big unknown question, which is why one thing I push for in a lot of state legislatures is look back provisions. I always say, you know, something that seemed like a good idea in 2015, probably, you know, I shouldn't say probably, but could look like a really bad idea in 2022. Like a sunset where like it has to be reapproved in five years or something? Not like, I mean, a sunset would be great, but I don't think people want to, you know, have to redo the whole thing every (laughs) five years, but more of just kind of like a two year, three year look back. What do we think is working? What do we think isn't working? Let's have the ability to change those parts of the legislation. But yeah, so I think you're starting to see the, we're kind of in the top half of the first inning to use a baseball analogy in that a lot of these reports that the federal agencies were tasked with writing by the executive order will start to come out probably September, October, November. But people should understand that's the first step. That's not the last step. I mean, these are not going to be a hard and fast rules about how, you know, the crypto industry is allowed to operate. There'll probably be requests for comment. There'll probably be public roundtables. There'll probably be a lot more consultation before we see anything like final rules. I don't want to, you know, presuppose anything, but like I said, I won't be, I think we'll have a better idea of what that might look like next winter. 
but it's not going to happen instantly. And that's a good thing. You know, I mean, it's meant to be a deliberative process because it has enormous, enormous ramifications. Okay. My last question is, and we don't usually ask this question, but given our audience of politicos in Oregon, is there any question we didn't ask or any topic we didn't cover that you think should be on the radar of people who work in the political space at the state level? You know, it's a really good question. And Oregon is unique in the space in that Senator Wyden's been such a great supporter and champion. He's very much tuned in kind of on the privacy aspect of it. And it's very interesting. You should remember that he's not, he didn't get involved because of crypto. He got involved because of programmers. And that's always been who he is going back to the nineties when he was in the house. He is kind of the original code is speech guy that sit by telling people you're not allowed to code or program certain things. You're restrict, you're restricting their first amendment rights. Did not know Commissioner that. Hoyle has also been really in, kind of interested in the space as she, hopefully she gets a different title come November. Um, <laughs> I certainly she, hope so. Although I know Alex doesn't. <laughs> But she was she came to DC and did some interesting just kind of, you know, I want to learn more about this stuff meetings. And those were those were great discussions as well. But, you know, it's just it's kind of I'm not someone who likes to dictate what I think state governments should and shouldn't be doing. I will just reiterate, I'm a fan of the task force approach. I know, like I said, it's not the sexiest solution. You're not going to, you know, stand something up in a week. But it is I think it's the right thing to do when you're looking at something as novel as this. Awesome. Convene the experts and take the time and get it right the first time. Oregon does love task force. So uh, <laughs> that's that probably something that will happen. But Ian, thanks so much for for taking the time and coming on the show today. Uh, hopefully it was intellectually stimulating for you as was as much for us. But I imagine that's probably the baseline you can get much more in depth. But, <laughs> but yeah, thanks again for coming on. And then before we let you go, so where can folks go and check out your company? Where can they maybe find more policy-related resources related to cryptocurrency? Feel free to kind of sound off on that. So we are blockchain.com, easy enough to remember. For policy questions for your audience, please feel free to reach out to me directly. I'm just Ian at blockchain.com, I-A-N at blockchain.com. I was very fortunate there were no other Ians in the company when I started, so I got that email address. (laughs) I'm a big, I mentioned Coin Center earlier. They're one of the originals and they're one of the best. I think they're just coincenter.org. They have done a lot of really, really good, high level, very sophisticated thoughts, um, thoughts and analysis around this. So we also on our own website have a bunch of very good educational materials for kind of crypto 101. People, you know, want to learn more about it generally before jumping in with both feet. So yeah, I would say our website for policy questions, just reach out to me directly. I'm happy to talk to anybody anytime about this stuff. But, you know, I will, I will talk your ear off about it. But um, and the educational materials, just our website as well. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Ian, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Please make sure to subscribe and give us five stars. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks, everyone.